This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Jenny. Um, we're going to be talking about the, I want to say the last and first men, but it's just last and first men. Yes. Story of the near and far future by Olaf Stapleton. And it's, uh, 336 pages long. It's, uh, from 1930. And it, apparently it's not a novel. It doesn't feel like a novel. <laughs> it certainly doesn't feel like a novel. I called it, in my really brief review I've written so far, an imagined planetary history. Yeah. Well, I think it's solar system, because I mean, they leave the Earth. Uh, so it's uh, multi-planetary? I don't know. Yeah. It's a, it's a, I was going to say a species history, but that's not right either. It's close to right. <laughs> it just keeps, the, the scope of it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger as the, no, as the book goes on i don't want to call it a novel <laughs> yeah i read um i was i broke out one of my old uh, reliable encyclopedias of science fiction and i was reading the entry on olaf stapleton and it said there that uh penguin in i guess a subsequent printing uh published it under the philosophy section really? which Ooh. i thought was interesting um because it it certainly is not a traditional novel it has no named characters at all. There's there's a few sort of persons in history that sort of have conver- semi conversations. Yeah, and or, I have to tell you, I lived for those parts. <laughs> well, you you didn't live very much then. No, they're pretty few and far between. Uh, I guess the, there's a a few little things like that, but. In, you were saying you, you didn't read the introduction, um, but the only thing that I think was really interesting about that is it was by, I want to say Brian Stableford, but I don't think that's actually who it was um, because that's too close to Stapleton. Anyways, in the introduction, it suggests not reading the first four parts, uh, uh, by which I think he meant chapters. Oh, really? Yeah, because... They deal with the near future at the time, which is, uh, I guess, 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, up to when the introduction was written, which it was in the 80s. And in that part of the book, uh, he gets everything wrong as to what's going to happen. Hmm. Um, you know, the wars between countries are not, they don't go the way he says. And Right, it's not as close as Jack London was in The Iron oh, no. Heel. <laughs> Jack London seems seems to be a little more prescient if if that's what it was for. Right. But I think um it doesn't really matter uh because that's not what I'm reading future. This is what they call a future history book. Mhm. And there's a few other such by other writers usually developed over multiple novels or book series or something like that. But in this case, it's it's basically a compact history of human civilization, human civilizations from beginning to end. Right, and I found at one point, I think halfway through the book, it just randomly says in passing that the whole period to be covered by this chronicle is two thousand million years. If that yeah. gives you an idea of what the author is trying to accomplish in one book, 
I believe that's two billion years in our in our modern idea. But yeah, you're probably right. There's a there's a, a few other lo- sort of weird colloquialisms like universes um, comes up quite a bit, but I think what he means by that is is it's an exact synonym for galaxy. Mm. It wasn't just dis- now we distinguish a universe as everything, right? Including all the galaxies. Whereas a back then it was I guess a little you know galaxies are just being you know discovered as separate from our own. Well, and his part of his point seems to be to point out how small of a part of the universe man is, to use his mm-hmm. term. And so it could be that the universes that are still uncreated right now or still in form or... I mean, he talks a lot about how things change and evolve. There was uh, more in that um, Wik- uh, not Wikipedia, encyclopedic entry talking about Star Maker and, and the plot of that, and it sounded like a sort of a reverse version of that, of this book, in that uh, it's about uh, a person who travels forward in time hmm. and goes to see the end of the universe and what's beyond it. And Sounds like Doctor Who. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, kind of like the everything that we don't understand is the, it's the end of 2001. <laughs> what's going on there? I don't know. Well, and that's interesting because in this book, they learn how to travel backwards in time to understand mm-hmm. history, but they they can't figure out how to move forward in it. Yeah. Um, whether there's it's not there or because they have no future, maybe. Right. Which is probably what it's hard. It's hard to say. Uh, although it's interesting because at the the majority of the book, I mean, there isn't really a plot, right? <laughs> the plot doesn't exist. No. <laughs> but if if we were trying to push pretty hard for a plot, the plot would be something like uh guy in the future near the end of human existence calls other guy in the present and says, hey, write a book. I'll give you all the words. And then a little later, after he's paused most of the book, he then uh experiences, I don't know, a few hundred thousand more years and then calls back and says, hey, let's put an ending on this sucker. <laughs> yeah. And that's the plot. So I was trying to figure out which, because there are 18 periods of man in this mm-hmm. book, and each of them is its own separate, I, I guess, evolutionary version. Well, yeah. not species. Yeah, order. not all of them, I guess, because some of them are created by a, a stage in the species that's living. Some mm-hmm. of them happen through evolution, so it's they're not yeah, all they're not all the current. same, right? Yeah. Um, but I couldn't figure out in which stage, which era the person writing is. Do you know? Do you get a sense oh, of that? Oh, yeah, he's in the first. He's in the first. Okay. He's a, he, he, it, it basically, it's supposed to be Olaf Stapleton. I see. Okay, that so makes sense. Looking like 1930 is is when it would be set. But, you know, then, it, it does kind of beg this question, because even though this person from the future is talking about the end, I wasn't sure I believed that there was an end ever. Um, because clearly, through all these millions of years, um, humanity kept being recreated and changed, but it was still somehow human. And at the end, they're talking about sending out the artificial human dust into the universe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I, I don't know. Is that an ending? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, if there's the 19th Man, uh, I, I, I don't know if you knew, but there is a sequel. 
Oh, really? Um, no, it's I called know. Last Man in London, which uh, I don't know much about other than the title. Mm-hmm. Um, I Apparently, uh, this book, uh, Last and First Man, was extremely popular, which is hard to believe, right? But it got great reviews. Um, it was fairly widely read. Mm-hmm. A lot of people um, thought very highly of it. And so, uh, he, he, um, made Last Men in London, which, let's see when that came out. That's 1932. And I'll, um, I'll read the description here. Okay. Narrator is the same member of the 18th and final human species who purportedly introduced Stapleton to write Last and the First Men. Last Men in London is the story of the being's exploration of the consciousness of a present day Englishman named Paul. From childhood through service with an ambulance crew in the First World War. By the way, that is what uh, Stapledon did during World War One. He was a conscientious objector and served as an ambulance driver or something. Uh, to adult as a school teacher, also following Stapledon, uh, who faces a submerged superhuman in a class named nicknamed Humpty. What? Okay, I don't know what's going on now. <laughs> Sounds a little more like a plot. Yeah. Although I, I just looked it up, too, because I hadn't heard of it before, and it sounds like it suffers the same plotlessness that this one does. <laughs> so it's just the exploration of one person's humanity instead of all of them. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, it's it's interesting. I mean, some of the themes that come up uh, are, they seem of the period, you know, of the 1930s. And then other themes, I would say, are not of the period, but are... Um, it's like it's the glaring obviousness. So, like, if we were to imagine this book was written today, the thing that people would be obsessing over, uh, the way uh, the writer would be obsessing over, would be probably the internet, as opposed to flying. Right? Flying comes up again and again. Um, the there's one whole human civilization that's obsessed with flying. Uh, right, especially so- right after birth, and they send them off in the parachutes, and then if they can't catch the yeah. airplanes, they die. <laughs> well, there's uh, and the the symbol of the cross as an airplane, and and then there's a, a human species that has wings. Yeah, when they get to Venus, right? They have to learn right. how to fly because there's no land. And and the, that's the seventh men, mm-hmm. and it's 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 like flying is it's hot in the 1930s, right? People are saying, you know, look at the flying's everywhere. The future is sort of embodied in the idea of this technology that had developed just in the 20th century. Right, and in the book, they run out of oil and petrol. (laughs) So only the humans would have to be able to learn how to fly on their own since they can't get there within a vehicle anymore. You know, one of the things that reminds me of this book reminds me of is um, the Larry Niven, Jerry Purnell book. Were you in on that podcast? Modi's? Yeah. Yeah. Remember, their civilization had had collapsed and uh, grown and collapsed and grown many, many times, and they had exhausted their their uh, mineral wealth. Right. And, and they it, had simultaneous species too, because that's, that's what right. these were, I think. And in if you look at it, sort of squinting, this human civilization is very much like the Modi civilization. 
it's it's collapsed and grows and collapsed and grown and and they've been cut off from the rest of the universe in terms of space travel. There's there's virtually no space travel at all. Right. In this, um, I, uh, one person I heard talking about it was saying, you know, how come they don't develop rocket ships? Well, but somehow they get to Venus and somehow they, they get, get to Mars, and I'm still kind of unclear on. I guess it was maybe that was the subatomic physics. That was how they applied the subatomic yeah, physics. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a little, but well, it's more the Martians came to Earth, right? Rather than the, the I don't think we did much on Mars. But it took oh, them millions of years. At some point, right. <laughs> we're walking around on Neptune, which is fun. But Mars, the Martians pretty much depleted the human species every time they came until I mean, it took them millions of years to figure out how to defeat them. So it was not an easy process. It took them a long time to figure out that they were a, an intelligent being and vice versa. Right. And not just a virus in their lungs. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I think the most poignant part of the book for me was when the humans were looking at the Venusians you know, the uh, squid-like clawed mm-hmm. beings of the oceans of Venus and looking at their society sort of quaint, violent, and incomprehensible. And then they say, well, we're killing them by doing this terraforming that we're doing. Might as well kill them all off. Yeah. It's like, okay. It's uh, kind of unfortunate, but we need the space, so. <laughs> yeah, and and they and then the, the reaction to that I mean, this is the interesting thing is Stapleton is, he doesn't like just, he's, he's trying to sort of see it from every reaction has a, every action has a consequence. And so the people think this is a good thing that they're doing, but they also think it's a terrible thing. And when they've done it, they, they are regretful, but they also prideful and having this, um, I mean, one one of the things I heard, Luke Burge was talking about this on his podcast. Uh, he didn't finish the book, but uh, he did read up at least half of it. Hmm. And and in in talking about it, he he was saying, you know, the the racism, which I think there is racism going on in the book, especially early on, in the early chapters. It's much more obvious. Right. Um, the racism that's in the book is is basically applying an attribute that you find in some individuals to the entire group. Oh, yeah. But the Russians, Italians, the Germans. The Chinese, the Chinese. have this. Mm-hmm. Their mentality. Over and over. Exactly. And some of the attributes he was giving, like especially to the Italians, it's not what <laughs> I think of as the current stereotype. No. Also, I was like, what? <laughs> well, I mean, the way... And the Americans are classified, and the the Chinese are classified. They have a meeting, and and they they like this about this people, and they that people like this. And then there's this, you know, there's this constant theme of uh, cultural evolution uh, reacting on previous circumstances. And I think the best way that I heard this book described is it's like a science fiction myth of humanity. It's not about a plot. It's about mythological sort of, it's a mythological story or stories that you can take as a whole. But 
uh, you can also take individual parts out and and understand those as uh, a way of understanding humanity. I mean, the ending of the book, the last paragraph or two, is uh, apparently quite moving to a lot of people. I, I thought it was very interesting and good. It was well done. Mm-hmm. But I'm not a music guy, and the metaphor is music. Oh, yeah. Is the right. beauty of the whole really enhanced by our agony? And is the whole really beautiful? And what is beauty? But one mm-hmm. thing is certain, man himself, at the very least, is music. Mm-hmm. A brave theme that makes musical also of its vast accompaniment, its matrix of storms and stars. La la. Goes on after that. Mm-hmm. For we shall make, after all, a fair conclusion to this brief music that is man. That didn't move you? Not not at all. Uh, no, I, thought, uh, I thought it was nice. <laughs> Nice, but somebody was saying I want that on my I, I want that on my tombstone or funeral. Oh, wow. um, it's very. Um, I I was trying to think about it in terms of of the time period. There's a few people who in science fiction uh, are sort of working this same idea, which is, which is deep time. The idea of of Earth not being uh, a young you know, new world, but being an old, old world. Hmm. And then the universe being much older than the earth itself. And then on into the future, our, our lifetimes as a species on the earth won't be that long. In, in the book here, we're getting the idea that human beings will live to the end of the earth and beyond will have to move off the earth because of uh, problems with the star right. and move around and terraform other planets in order to survive a, li- a little longer. But if you look at other species on the earth, it seems unlikely that humans will actually survive, at least in uh, anything recognizably a human form. Uh, and given how, other species have done. I mean, we might say, oh, we're, we're much smarter. And I guess that's what um, Stapleton's saying. But if you look at what happens in the story, I think, you know, he was a historian. And one of the things that you, you see when you see, look at history is that civilizations fall. Right. They also rise, but they fall every time. They always fall. And what makes them fall in this in this series of eighteen different um, civilizations, uh, human species, I guess the species stand for civilizations, is that uh, it's random. We, sometimes it's um, an individual doing something. Um, sometimes it's a set of circumstances heading in a certain direction. Sometimes it's a, a, a cosmic. Holocaust by, you know, some asteroid dropping on them. There's no one thing that's going to cause the end of a civilization, but it will end. Right. Well, and I I thought the music analogy was more about um, just experiencing it and enjoying it for what it is and and not grieving the end of it, but just to say, look at all these wonderful things that happened. There it is, you know. Purpose. Right. It gives it a. Um, our time, what did he say, was the opening stirrings of the music, and then their time is the ending of the uh, of the symphony, mm-hmm. and the the rising tides of of uh, certain musical chords or notes will 
recur and echo and et cetera. Mm-hmm. It, can, it's a nice metaphor. It is. Can we go back to the kind of racism stuff for a bit? Sure. I was just thinking about, I thought maybe it was more intentional than of his time necessarily, because you see throughout this book, and it's not just the racism, but the theme of going back to savagery and losing an ovation is mm-hmm. this pattern. Because when, when life is almost too hard to survive, people communicate less, they work together less, they're individualized, just surviving. So language goes away. And yeah, this is your favorite part of the book. <laughs> right. And so I, but I think that when they were working together, like when, when the Martians kept invading, they had to forget about the differences between them mm-hmm. and work together as humanity instead. And then as soon as they were safe again, they kind of would devolve back into the savagery or something would happen that would force their hand. Um, so I don't know. I kind of thought that he, the way he introduced that, even though he wasn't quite right with the way history went, it kind of served a purpose. Like this is the this is the beginning of the pattern. We're going to establish the pattern now, and then we're just going to see it repeat in all these different ways. Yeah, I, I can't imagine that uh, it's a good idea to skip the first part of the book. Unless, no, I think it's really important. I, I understand why. Um, I understand the impulse because it, there is there is just such a. I mean, it's like looking at the last one, the Iron Heel. You know. It's not really uh, geared towards regular readership. Now, you could edit that book and make it a lot more, or, or rewrite it and make it a lot more peppy, you know, right. a lot modern. Or you could take the ideas about each stage of exactly. man and write a novel based on that world. Exactly. That would, that's and what I want to read. <laughs> I think that that's happened in, in many cases. I, I think, you know, if you look at, at the one we were talking about, The Moat in God's Eye, um, that is a story that is basically a, a plot centered around uh, what's what's happening right. in one period of time there. And many other books uh, deal with, I mean, part of this reminded me of the Iron Heel in, in the rise and the fall of, of attempts to make a, a better world. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, I think I wanted to read this. I wanted to read this very interesting thing because there's a couple of um, other authors of the period who, who are working in the same idea. I mean, Arthur Arthur C. Clarke does a little bit of this in um, a couple of books, but there's also um, there's also uh, William Hope Hodgson, who write wrote a very strange and weird and interesting book called. Um, uh, there's another one called The Nightlands, but though. What I'm thinking of is called uh, uh, it's the it's on a it's a house the house on the borderlands and that's uh, a journal um, of somebody's found in a house and the journal is of a man who goes crazy basically and then astrally projects or something to the to man's far future and the end of the earth very very strange book. But it has this idea of, of we've just learned in the early 20th century that how stars work. We've just learned how, how, uh, 
when we when we learn how stars work, we also learn about planetary formation, how planets come into being around stars, and and that time is astounding to people. And so in another work like H.G. Wells's The Time Machine, it's not just a visit to the near future, uh, it, but it's also a visit to the end of the Earth, the destruction of the Earth, uh, or near new to, newly come destruction of the Earth by the sun expanding. And that feeling comes up in a bunch of things, but also it, it's in not just science fiction, it's also in horror. It's in Lovecraft. That's what Lovecraft is basically looking at. His whole universe is about this idea of cosmicism, how the universe doesn't care about us. And at best, it's indifferent, and at worst, it's hostile. And uh, he loved, Lovecraft loved this book. He thought it was wonderful. And I've got a bunch of quotes here uh, from various letters that I wanted to read because I thought they were good. So uh, this is from the Wikipedia entry for for this um, last and first man. H.P. Lovecraft held the book in very high regard, though he did not say whether it influenced any of his own stories. I don't think that matters. You can see it in, you can see similar ideas in there. Saying in a 1936 letter to Fritz Leiber, no one ought to miss reading Olaf Stapleton's Last and First Men. Probably you have read it. If not, make a beeline for the library or bookstall. In another uh, 1936 letter to Leiber, he says, I'm glad to hear of your perusal of Last and First Men, a volume which to my mind forms the greatest of all human achievements in the field that Master Ackerman, that is, uh, Forrest Ackerman, would nominate scientific fiction. So in the 1930s, they were just starting to use science fiction as a term. Hmm. Um, Its scope is dizzying, and despite a somewhat disproportionate acceleration of tempo towards the end, there is sort of a a skipping uh, stuff, right? Um, A few scientific inferences which might legitimately be challenged it remains a thing of unparalleled power. As you say, it has the truly basic quality of myth, and some of the episodes are, matchless, are of matchless poignancy and dramatic intensity. Huh. And then in another letter in 1937, he wrote, uh, I don't care for Wells's novels. Uh, so, sorry, I don't care for science fiction of the sort. So this is the time period where they're changing science, science fiction to science fiction. I don't care for science fiction of the sort published in the cheap magazines. There's no vitality in it. Merely dry theories tacked on shallow, unreal, insincere, juvenile adventure stories. But I do like a few real masterpieces of the field. Certain H.G. Wells novels, S. Fowler writes The World Below, and the marvelous piece of imagination, Last and First Man. Now, I know uh, Lovecraft if you read like a lot of his stuff, he's obsessed with the stars. He's always talking about stars and he doesn't do this vast sweep of history in the same way, but he does have, there's a story in which uh, beings from the far future, uh, a being from the far future trades places with a man in the present. And they see each other's worlds through each other's eyes. And that's, it's, it's similar. I think in this book, we've got 
at some point we we don't even have intelligent humans, right? And it wasn't one of the species of man a monkey. <laughs> one, yeah, one ended up as a monkey, and I think interbred with monkeys was the impression yeah. I got. And then one was um, a rabbit that had yeah. somehow evolved into a human, kind of, but then they were wiped out by disease. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's there's a um, there's I mean there's a uh, Luke was saying there was no humor in the book. I think that there's no jokes, but there certainly is a sort of a, a cosmic joke going on in that. Yeah, the, the, there's a six people or was six women and fourteen men on a boat in the in the North Pole hmm. um, with two monkeys, and they're all that's left of human civilization. And then they have sort of these comedic adventures as they try and repopulate the planet. Right, and they end up split into two groups, and all of them are dealing with Arctic temperatures. And then later on, they find that the monkeys have made the humans their slaves. Yes. (laughs) I mean, it's one of the... And then the monkeys get obsessed with metal, and so that allows... They get distracted, and so that allows the humans to rise up in revolution and take over. (laughs) That's right. uh, My favorite period of man was third man where they had cat faces bat ears bright red hair steel fingers and the ability to hear and like a subatomic level i think is what it said Mm -hmm. that was my favorite i couldn't i mean just the picture in my head that doesn't look human (laughs) (laughs) well i mean it's it's funny because that's if there's one of the themes is flying another theme is is intelligence and how it how to how to get more of it mm-hmm. um at one point they've got the humans they've developed a was it the sixth man or something they've reduced they they breed a kind of human that has a brain 14 feet across or something right and then they have I to mean, figure out how to create a body that will hold it <laughs> that's right uh, and they use ferroconcrete to hold the right <laughs> The, uh, the skull in position and, and then they have like eyes on stalks that can, uh, have lenses replaced by, uh, other lenses so it can do magnify, magnification. And it was like, well, I'm not sure that's how intelligence works is just by making your brains bigger. <laughs> I, I like the idea of, uh, you know, people will try anything and, it, I would say that the book is full of jokes in the sense that it's all the follies of mankind and not just mankind, because also the the Martians, right? When they come to Earth, they are obsessed with diamonds. They think diamonds are awesome. Right. But the, the, the Earthlings are not treating them properly oh, with the proper better. federation. That's right. So they, they steal them from everyone's up. jewelry and stick them on mountaintops. Right. There was some lady walking down the street with a diamond used as a symbol of her office being the mayor. And she she had it between her breasts and they basically pulp her and steal her diamond and put it on top of a mountaintop. Yeah. Did you catch the parts about how the Martians learned about humans by, you know, seeing if they're if their bodies would fall a tear apart if you pulled them far enough? And yeah. Just little bits like that, yeah, it's kind of the, thrown in there. I mean, it, it's it, it's 
it's so full of stuff. It's just the way that it's written is so distancing from, I mean, it's, it's the same complaint I had of, of the Iron Heels, the distancing by having it set 7,000 years or 700 years in, in humans future looking back at, at a journal. This okay. is, uh, two billion years in the future looking back. Right. This is even more distant. And it's not just the, I mean, at least the last one was a journal. So it was like a personal experience. Mm-hmm. This is written like a history book where mm-hmm. lots of dense content. Each paragraph starts with the main idea and has the details underneath. Next paragraph is the next main idea. It's very um, much like an essay almost. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And every time I thought the earth was destroyed, it would come back. And I guess it's, it just depends on what your definition of destruction is. You know, we always yeah. talk about, um, you know, when Yellowstone blows and the world, mm-hmm. the world is destroyed, quote unquote, but that wouldn't qualify for destruction in this book because that would just be another new beginning. Um, as we saw the earth change and the ocean disappeared, um, near Patagonia. And so they had new virgin plains with fertile soil. And then there's this one part. Oh, how the first man ended in hurricanes of steam mm-hmm. of 200 million people. All were burnt or roasted or suffocated within three months, all but the 35 who were on the ship in the North Pole. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then it said later, many hundred thousand years passed before the upstart volcanoes began to die. So mm-hmm. they were basically living on a planet with completely unstable core and structure, but they were still there. Mm-hmm. So is that destruction? I don't know. Well, uh, it, it's, it, you know, it also reminds me of uh, Earth Abides, uh, George R. Stewart's novel yeah. and Scarlet Plague. And it, you know, he, human civilization rise and fall. And I think they do something s- similar, that crew of people, um, they, they, as the old people are getting older, they say, okay, you, you're, you, you studied biology in university. I want you to chisel, chisel your, uh, your knowledge onto this granite stone here, right? And in, in saving it that way, they, uh, they think they're going to help future civilizations, but. And they do. Well, in some but, ways. Uh, the future civilization already knew all the stuff they knew right. when they find that. And then they say, oh, this is fascinating. Look at the way they thought. Not like, look at the information they saved for us. Right, because, it's anecdotal kind of. <laughs> because the, the chi- their children think of them as, as fools, right? They, they're, way, they're so worried about these goddamn stones. Let's, let's focus on the fun things, which is running around and having sex. Hmm. <laughs> which is like... It is useful because you want to have that civilization, I guess, develop later on. But yeah, it's, it's, it's an amazingly dense book that I think everybody should read. It's just, I don't think most people will oh, be no. able to through it, through it because it is so hard. Yeah. I think, um, Olaf really reveled in thinking of all the different ways people could have sex. He really, he manages <laughs> to throw that into every, But it's interesting because some of the time it's used for procreation only, like, you know, that's the point, we must survive. But a lot of times it's the basis of a different type of relationship, one that really doesn't exist in our society. I I kind of thought it was pretty effective and interesting. Live for hundreds of thousands of years and are married for tens of thousands 
to a group of 95 other people. Mm-hmm. Isn't that the same group that they carry the child for 10 years? Yeah, or 20 years, yeah, I think. (laughs) 20-year pregnancy. Right. And then even that idea ends up hurting them in the end because uh, then they have inbreeding, but they don't know whose children are whose, so it leads to genetic destruction at one point. Um, But I thought that was interesting how, how he fit that in. The other part of it that was really fascinating to me was this concept of the end of life. And there were a lot of different periods in the species where they would even, they would have a pact or an age limit or, you know, at some point, even if nature hadn't taken your life, you took your life, Mm -hmm. whether it was for the good of the group or um, there was that one stage where you'd spend the last 10 years in senility. So they'd end Mm -hmm. your life before that. (laughs) Um, well, that that again is a theme from the early 20th century of the idea of uh, euthanasia and, right. and putting down putting down people who are you know uh, disabled and so, I mean there's all sorts of hor- horror horrific stuff that um, is in here very lightly I would say it's, you know the racism is rather light mm-hmm. but it's there and uh, it's but. I mean, the, the sheer imagination that happens in each of these varied histories of mankind is, is, I would say, unparalleled. Is that the way? Yeah. Well, and I was fascinated how he transitioned from one to the other. Um, I can't remember which stage it was where they were flying, but then it, it used to be that they'd kill the children who couldn't fly and then they started realizing that less and less people were able to fly so they eventually were like okay well that won't be what we're about anymore (laughs) and they had all the people who could fly fall into the volcano (laughs) Um, (laughs) but there seemed to be um, a movement toward that kind of group group good group think and it started to become more inbred in their humanity too like that just became what you did. Even near the end, they had telepathy, but it wasn't like Martian telepathy where they couldn't think for themselves and didn't have a unique goal, but they had, they had to deal more with both the group and their individual thought, which I thought was a really interesting movement. Yeah. Telepathy is uh, another of those themes that starts in the early 20th century. And it, it's, it's interesting because it seems to be a harmonious thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way he characterizes the human species is generally either they're completely unified all the time or they're divided into two groups. Right. Um, but it's to say that's a oversimplification, oversimplification is like a, a big um, understatement because, you know, <laughs> every group is, is, subdivided into many other groups. Well, and he willingly oversimplifies all the time because he's like, I could tell you about these six different versions of man, but we don't have time for that. And just understand that they're interesting and unique, but (laughs) that's all you can. Interesting, fascinating, but we must press on. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, The other sub subhumans, it says are the baboon like submen from chapter seven. Hmm. Uh, the seal-like submen from chapter 13, and uh, in the period of Eclipse, chapter 14, man's consciousness was narrowed and coarsened into brute consciousness. By good luck, brute precariousness precariously survived. 
Nature succeeds in colonizing Neptune where sentient life fails. Human-derived mammals of all shapes come to dominate Neptune's ecosystem before adapting well enough for the vestiges of opposable thumbs and intelligence to become assets again. So humans disappear for a while, right? right. Well, because they were living in gas. <laughs> but they're also, they are everything, right? The, the, um, the, they form every part of the ecosystem. They, um, can, I was going to say converge into other, but they, they diverge into the various niches that are available. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> this is, this is, I mean, pretty funny, but also I, I think it's curious, uh, that, he thinks, or maybe he doesn't think this, but it seems like in all of human history, we we think of humans as being, you know, the the primary species on the earth. I, I was reading yesterday there was the number of rats in in Manhattan versus the number of people. There's a lot more rats in Manhattan than there are people. Oh no, it was ants. I think it was hmm. ants. But even so, the most of human uh, most of Earth history is not. Uh, dominated by an intelligent species, right? It's just species, many different kinds of species. But, um, will, uh, will an intelligent species always evolve into, uh, planet's ecosystem? It, it seems, doesn't seem to be necessarily necessary. And yet that's sort of the thing that's happening in this is, is that even though uh, some of these subsequent species of human, humankind come out of unintelligent species. They always do come back out. Something intelligent, something human can come back out of, of the unintelligent. Right. But it does seem linked to the ecosystem and the stability of the environment, even if it's not dictated by that to begin with. I guess there wouldn't be much of a story if it never never came back to the final guys, right? Right. Well, it was more interesting to me that the eras where the people who were in existence were designing the next generation, um, because that's clearly not dictated by the environment. Um, I don't know. It was hard to grasp their science that they were using because they yeah. had to start from scratch every time. There's not, there's not much uh, talk about the how the tech works exactly although there yeah. there's something it sounds very much like a nuclear bomb early on mm-hmm. um there's a few a few uh you know things that could be hand waved to uh some sort of technology but you know the technology that i think is completely missing and that is very obviously a major theme in science fiction is uh robots there's no artificial intelligences there's no human replacement for uh human shaped replacement uh uh robot intelligence that that i would uh, would have suspected has got to be one of the you know the 19th man is the robot man right i mean and i i don't think that the disappearance of oil and coal should be so prohibitive as it is i mean clearly there are other sources of energy well, yes. And so he kind of lets that just dictate everything from that point forward. Yeah, I appreciated that at least at the end there were multiple versions of the human species because if you 
follow the logic of evolution, it wouldn't just be one species every time, right? It would be, I mean, that should be, that should be what happens in the end. Yeah. Uh, he said, if you, that's one of the parts where he, it, it starts being less about the history and more about the 18th man. He says, if you could see us now, you would be very surprised by what you see because we look like all sorts of things. Right. And that makes me think, you know, oh, well, that I, I want to see a picture of that. It sounds fascinating. It does sound fascinating. I've been thinking about all the books I've read recently that are post-human in, mm-hmm. in focus, you know, quantum reality, everything. And I that's kind of lacking here, too, other than the telepathic connection. There's never a point where they're not going back and starting from the same point where they were. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure what I think about that exactly. It's like they're starting from scratch every single time. There's no overarching continuity. Except for that something is still the same that makes it all humanity, right? Mm-hmm. Like I can't figure out where that line is. I think I think we're being forced to draw the line in a different direction or a different spot every time. Yeah. And um it, it it's ultimately I think a a love letter to humanity rather than oh. a letter. <laughs> No, I think it, you're right. It, it, in the way that Lovecraft looks at the universe and mankind's destiny, it's it's pretty pessimistic. It's like, uh, it's it's not ah, it's <laughs> it, it's it's sort of a different take on the same. You know, looking out at the stars and thinking how how big and how how big everything is and how small we all are, and having a sort of a different reaction to it, but. It's, it's, uh, I, I, you know, I want to read another Olaf Stapleton book. Yeah, I do too now. I'm interested uh, in the Star Maker. Is that what it's called? The Star yeah, Maker? Star Maker. Star Maker. Yeah. That's his other, uh, somebody called it a masterpiece. Um, and I thought that was pretty good. But, um, there's another one that sounded pretty good too. It's called Sirius. Hmm. Um, and named, uh, same as the star, I guess. Um, but it's about a, a dog that is uplifted. Um, a dog that is turned into a in- human level intelligence. Oh, great. So we and can assume like that. Dog <laughs> <laughs> right. That's probably the author's like sitting around, dogs curling up on his feet. He's like, I'm going to write a book for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. There's always the, um, it's, it's called the, the subtitle on that one is A Fantasy of Love and Discord. <laughs> um, Scientist Thomas Trelone creates a super intelligent dog named Sirius. He is the only dog to have attended, uh, attained a human-like intelligence. Other dogs of the same breed Trelone created have an intermediate intelligence. They are above dogs' average intelligence, but they cannot master human language and complex analytic thinking as Sirius does. A sense of existential questioning suffuses the book as the author def- delves into every aspect of Sirius's psyche. Hmm. <laughs> Who am I? And where is my bone? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have no hands. Help me. Well, and the nice thing about these books is they're probably almost all in the public domain, so you can download them for free to read them. They're actually there's a link right there, full text online. Yeah, it, it, they're mostly they're in the public domain in um, in many countries like Canada and, and the UK, 
but in Australia, I think, but not unnecessarily in the U.S. Yeah. Doesn't matter. Um, because they're, they're pretty cool. I, I like the, uh, I like Olaf Stapleton. I think he's, he's, uh, I think one of the reasons we don't hear much about him is because he's British and, um, and he died, uh, before, um, 1920. Yeah, mm-hmm. before a lot of the real science fiction sort of became mainstream. So he's a very influential uh, writer as as opposed to a very famous writer. Right, and I think as long as you know that it's not going to be this fast-paced action novel, then, you know, you can maybe read little bits of it here and there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I liked it. I, I was very glad to have read it. Yeah, me too. It's very different from what I usually read, I think. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. Shortest podcast ever.